0: This evening's reading is from Psalm 109. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has, May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the broken-hearted. He loved to pronounce a curse, may it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing, may it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment, it entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake, out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshippers I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. This is God's word.
1: Gosh. Let's pray. Oh Heavenly Father, you know how difficult my colleague has been lately. You know he lied to take credit for my work and has spread those horrible rumours about me. You know how rude and unkind he is to me most days. Please would he get sacked and die? And would his family be thrown out of their house? Dear Lord, please would his children end up starving orphans who never have families themselves? And please would you make sure that his sins and their sins are never forgiven? Who wants to say a hearty amen? Who could imagine praying a prayer like that themselves? And doesn't the New Testament kind of completely contradict what we heard in the Psalm? You know, Jesus says in Luke 6, "Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who will treat you." So what on earth do we do with Psalm 109? It's the longest and the most extensive of what are called the imprecatory psalms. That's the Psalms that call for judgment on enemies. Now it is tempting to ignore them or dismiss them as kind of an embarrassing bit of the Old Testament, but thankfully Jesus has now come so we can just gloss over that bit. But we can't do that, and we shouldn't do that. We can't do it for a theological reason, and we shouldn't do it for a pastoral reason. Now theologically, you can't just write them off as just something from the Old Testament, because while the New Testament does indeed call us to love our enemies... It also quotes approvingly from the imprecatory psalm. So in Acts one hundred twenty, Peter quotes this very psalm, verse 8 of it. As we work through the text, I want to, to show you how the New Testament shapes our understanding of this psalm, but also how this psalm ought not and cannot be taken out of the Bible once God has put it in there. There is, though, a pastoral reason, too, for not avoiding psalms like this. In other words, we shouldn't get rid of them because we need them. How can I say that? Well, because it gives us relevant, constructive wisdom as we face difficult situations and unpleasant people in our lives. We need never be embarrassed by God's word. It is always for our good. How can I say that? I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago with an just incredible lady called Ali Blair, wonderful um, old Christian lady. And she spent most of her life living in parts of the world where you'd prefer not to spend any time at all, especially conflict zones. And she talked at one point about being in Burundi, in the bush in Burundi, just after July 1994, when the Rwandan genocide had finally ended. And there were thousands of orphaned children who'd experienced unimaginable horror. And had escaped over the border. And they were seeking to love them. And to look after them and just help them heal from some of the trauma that they'd endured. And wonderfully, over the, over the weeks and months, many of the children started to put their trust in Jesus. But the strangest thing happened. that She noticed that uh, while these nine and ten-year-olds were, were praying to put their trust in Jesus, they kept confessing, please forgive me for my adultery. So what on earth do they mean? Do they mean spiritual adultery, you know, worshipping other gods before? And then it emerged. One of the teams supposedly helping them had been sexually abusing these poor, traumatised, vulnerable little children. They handed him over to the authorities very quickly. He was charged, condemned and sent to prison where he stayed for one day because his uncle was a very powerful man. And so he was just let out. And her response was, "Ah, I mean, just, where's the justice? And Psalm 109, Psalm 109 helps you know what to do with the, that you feel when you yourself or others you hear about experience terrible wickedness, awful injustice. It gives us words that we can pray even then. And as it does so, it, it also helps all of us as we seek to cope with the smaller daily injustices which all people go through. Let's work through it. Now, we, um, we heard in Psalm 108 that the gospel was spread throughout the world in spite of opposition, and now we see quite what some of that opposition can inj- involve And what we'll do is we'll work through the text before we take a step back to fit it into the Bible and then think about what on earth do we actually do with this psalm, having understood it. So firstly, David faces a deadly betrayal. Now, David begins the psalm praying that God would speak and not be silent because there's a lot of people who aren't being silent and are saying some awful things. My God whom I praise, do not remain silent for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues, with words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I'm a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. The people attacking David, you'll see uh, verse one, they're described as, uh, sorry, verse two, they're described as wicked, um, as full of hatred, verses three and five, and as doing evil, verse five. They're deceitful. Uh, we're told accu- when they make their accusations, it's with lying tongues, verse 2. And perhaps worst of all, David has done nothing to deserve this. Uh, he, he's, verse 4, he's shown friendship to them. He's he done good to them, verse 5. So David's, it's not just David's life is under threat. It's David's life is under threat from his friends, from people he's served and been a blessing to. And I think of King Saul. When David was a young man, he saved Saul and the Israelite army from Goliath. When Saul was terribly oppressed by horrific dark moods, David helped to relieve him. How does Saul betray, uh, repay him? By hunting David down, trying to kill him, tracking him through the wilderness, trying to slaughter him. Or at the other end of David's life, think of Ahithophel, his chief counsellor. When Absalom, David's own son, uh, held a coup and kicked David off the throne, Ahithophel turned on David and helped Absalom. Counseling Absalom, the the day that the aged king had had to stagger out of Jerusalem, hunt him down like a dog, this very night, send the troops, slaughter him in his sleep. It really is important that we understand that the seriousness of the situation— This psalm is not, dear Lord, the person in front of me did not have their Oyster card ready and I had to wait four whole seconds to get through the barrier. It's not even, you know, I've had an awfully unfair boss at work who's cheated me out of a a promotion uh, and making life really miserable. Now this is, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. And one of the problems I think that many of us have Not all, probably, but many, as we read a psalm like this, is that we've never experienced something like this. So I imagine all of us have been betrayed by close friends, but usually that betrayal has been, you know, revealing some shameful secret or cutting us out from some group we thought we were part of. But this is conspiring to have you put in prison and killed. And the first step to understanding a psalm like this is just grasping how wicked David's enemies are and how serious the threat they pose is. Now, before we move on, uh, do you notice the mention of the word accuse in verse 4? That word accuse runs throughout this psalm. It is the Hebrew word accuse is Satan. And it's where we get the word Satan, the accuser from. And we'll come back to it, but there is the whiff of sulfur running through this psalm as you see the behavior of the one accusing and seeking to destroy David. David faces a deadly betrayal. Secondly, David prays to God for justice. Now, the first thing to notice about these verses is they're a prayer. Oh, yeah, it's a psalm. I know, but while it's obvious, it's easy just to gloss over and miss the importance of that. In other words, this isn't David promising, I will have my revenge in this life or the next. It's David praying, saying, God, I leave it to you. There's all the difference in the world. Many of the Psalms where David cries out for God to act are written at the time when he's on the run from Saul. And yet David never, ever, once, laid a finger on Saul himself he cried out to god he didn't act himself in other words he's doing exactly what we're told to do in romans 12:19 where paul writes do not take revenge my dear friends but leave room for god's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge i will repay says the lord Okay, let's work through and see exactly what David prays for and why. Uh, Verses 6 to 8. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few and may another take his place of leadership. Now this is a prayer that the influence of this enemy might end. So that he doesn't get away with it. That powerful friends uh, or financial bribes don't see him escape his day of justice. This is saying, please, would he actually be stopped? And of course, a position of leadership, it multiplies someone's influence, whether it's for good or for evil. And so he says, please, he's evil. Take away his position of leadership and give it to someone deserving. who will be a blessing. And the next section, verses 9 to 15, I think this is the most shocking for us as David prays for judgment on the man's family as well. May his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. Actually, this is a poetic way of saying, Lord, bring an end to the, the wicked family line that nurtures and breeds such behaviour. Now, sitting here in the individualistic, atomized West, we just don't realise how much we are a product of our families and our societies. We like to think, you could put me at any point in history or in any place in the world, and I would have the same moral values that I have right now because I have developed them rubbish if you or I had lived 400 years ago or grown up in a different place we would have grown up with a very different set of assumptions and so David is saying look not just this person but the whole system the whole culture that behaves like that needs to go Actually, we saw something exactly like this when we studied the book of Esther in discipleship groups last term. When the Israelite slaves escaped from Egypt, what happened? The Amalekite army sought to commit genocide and wipe them out. 450 years later, what happens? King Agag, the Amalekite king, comes again and tries to wipe out the Israelites. 500 years after that, one of Agag's descendants, we read, Haman, in the Assyrian Empire, tries to commit genocide and wipe out the Israelites. Hatred of the Jews seems to run through Amalekite culture. It's interesting. In his commentary on Psalm 109, Christopher Ash points out very perceptive.ly In Acts 2:40, Peter doesn't say to the crowd, "Save yourselves from your sins by trusting in Jesus." He does say that, but he says more than that. He says, "Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." This whole generation is corrupt. This culture is corrupt. Now don't misunderstand me, the, the Bible absolutely recognises individual agency, individual responsibility and God declares in Ezekiel 18.20, your family won't be punished for your sins, you will. And you won't be punished for their sins, you'll face justice for your own. But families and even societies can develop and propagate sinful, wicked habits. And David's visceral prayer is a call, God please would you stop all of this sin, not just one individual involved in it, but all those involved in it. The final verses in the central section, I think they show the justice of David's cry. Look at verse 18, Um, sorry, verse 16. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor, the needy, and the brokenhearted. Just after my dad died in January, my mum received a whole glut of calls and texts from fraudsters, Apparently, I was doing some research and apparently that's exactly what they do. They check the registers for, for recent deaths and then contact relatives knowing that they'll be a bit more vulnerable then. So they might be able to uh, get them in a moment of weakness to, to reveal details. so They can steal their money. That makes me angry because that is wicked. But this is a whole lot worse. This is someone, verse 16, hounding to death the poor and the needy and the broken hearted happy to starve them to death to squeeze a few more pennies. And the next verses show that this wicked behaviour was something he actually enjoyed, something that went right down to the core of his being. Verse 17, he loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. it entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. That is a frightening warning. Eventually, the things you say and the things that you do, they sink in and become the person that you are. So David prays that God would give him what he deserves. Verse 19, may it be like a cloak wrapped around him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. Let it come back to them. But you sovereign Lord. The turning point in the Psalms is so often, but you sovereign Lord, but you O Lord. And we see David prays for his rescue. His hope is not himself, but his God. But you sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me for I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, sovereign Lord. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame. But may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as a cloak. He cries out, do you see, for rescue, for your name's sake and out of the goodness of your love, verse 21, according to your unfailing love, verse 26. You've got to have a clear grasp of God's character because you'll need it when life gets hard. David goes back to God's character because he knows God never acts out of character. And because of that, there is a triumphant finale to the psalm. As he looks forward to the salvation he knows must come, because God will be faithful, and the celebration that he will surely engage in. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord, in the great throng of worship as I'll praise him, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. But just as there is the whiff of sulfur about the, the first 20 verses, there is the aroma of Christ about these verses. As so often, the psalms point beyond King David to Great David's greater son, King Jesus. And verse 25 describes the scorn of the accusers shaking their heads in mockery, the very things that Matthew records in Matthew 27:39 as he recounts the cross. For at the cross, the truly innocent sufferer, falsely accused, hounded to death, died. And as baffling as we find these psalms where David is attacked and hounded and accused and hated and and as odd as they seem, don't move on from them because they are very, very precious if you're a Christian. Because these psalms, they give us insight into what it was like for the Lord Jesus to go through the betrayal, the hatred, the condemnation and the execution. They let us peer into the soul of the Lord Jesus and they increase our wonder as we remember he pray not for condemnation, but for forgiveness from the cross. Okay, we've got, uh, it's a hot evening. We've got one thing to look at on the screen. Uh, So we've got a visual to to engage you a little bit differently before you pass out from the heat. And then we're going to say, what do you actually do with this arm? So we're almost there. Let's uh, let's keep it together, people. Um, Now you might think, the main application is, okay, so if I have horrible people in my life, this is how to pray. I don't think it is, because of the significance this psalm takes on when you set it in the wider Bible story. So, start the graphic. Now, after Satan tempted Adam and Eve right at the beginning of human history to bring misery and death into the world, God declared in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says this to Satan the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that conflict then traces down through the generations of Bible history. So as wicked Cain slays godly Abel, the seed of the serpent is striking the seed of Eve. As Pharaoh tries to exterminate the Israelite slaves, the same thing's happening. As David kills Goliath, well, the anointed king, the seed of Eve, is crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. On and on through the Old Testament, the the theme is played out. But all those conflicts, they, they really point to and focus in on the central moment in history as Satan orchestrates the murder of the ultimate seed of Eve, God's anointed king, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the apparent defeat was only a striking of his heel. And in his death, he crushed Satan's head for good. And so when the, when the apostles, after Jesus' death and resurrection, looked back on the Old Testament, they read Psalms like this in a whole new light. They saw uh, points beyond King David and whoever it was who betrayed David to the ultimate King David, Jesus, and to the ultimate wicked friend, Judas, possessed by Satan. And that's why Peter quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, as they replace Judas, the accuser, betrayer, with Matthias, the new apostle. And then Revelation 12:17, we saw last term, tells us the devil makes war on the church because he hates Jesus. And so this... Uh, after focusing in this, this hatred of the serpent, this desire to destroy the seed of Eve, having focused in on Jesus at the cross, it then spreads out as Satan hates all those who are in Christ, all who follow him, all who love him. We saw in Esther, we live in a battle. The outcome is sure, but the war rages. Life is not neutral. You're in a war between good and evil. And Satan is raging against the people of God. And when you see that, here's the headline, ultimately the brutal call for judgment in this psalm is a cry for the destruction of the devil. And it's a chilling warning that those who ultimately side themselves with the devil in their opposition to the people of God, their persecution of the people of God, face a terrible, terrible end. Okay. Okay. What do you and I do with this psalm tomorrow? What are we supposed to do with it as we leave the building? Firstly, pray for the persecuted church. That's the first thing. Reading for this psalm ought to be a spur to you and to me to pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution and terrible injustice right now just because they love Jesus. Some are suffering things every bit as bad as what is described here and they need our prayers. They are not embarrassed by a psalm like this. It is hope for them. It assures them God will judge. It does something else for us when we pray for the persecuted church. And if you've never got involved in that, then download uh, the the daily prayer points from Open Doors. You can get it on PrayerMate or you can get it on the internet. Open Doors are very sane, very reliable and very helpful, connecting you with what's going on in the persecuted church around the world. But another thing happens as we pray for the persecuted church, and that's our perspective changes. You know, I am much less likely to respond to the the petty injustices I face like David does in Psalm 109. I'm much less likely to respond feeling like this if I'm praying for people who really are going through this kind of thing. Being prayerfully involved in them just gives me a perspective that changes how I respond to injustice. First thing, pray for the persecuted church. Secondly, trust God for justice and rescue. We are encouraged to trust God when we suffer wrong, just as David does. But our prayers will look different from his because we have seen David's prayer answered at the cross. Let me say that again. We're encouraged to pray when we suffer and to trust God. But our prayers, your prayers must look different from David's prayer here because we've seen David's prayer answered at the cross. What do I mean? At the cross, God answers the cry of his people for please, would you judge wickedness? He answers the cry of the oppressed throughout history. Will you do nothing? And he brings terrible, unbearable judgment on wickedness. But Jesus voluntarily, God the Son, steps in to take that punishment so you and I could be saved. That's why the cross changes things. So if the early Christians in Jerusalem prayed this psalm after Judas betrayed Jesus, which they may well have done, and if they also prayed this psalm after Saul had killed Stephen and was persecuting the church terribly, which they may well have done, then God answered both prayers. The conversion of Saul, the apostle Paul, is just as much an answer to this psalm as the condemnation of Judas because the cry that Saul's wickedness would be punished was answered at the cross where Jesus took Saul's place and suffered his punishment. The good news for you and for me is he took our place too. And whatever you've done, whatever you've done tonight, if you put your trust in Jesus, your sins are paid and you can be forgiven. And that changes us. Because we know God punishes evil. We've seen it now happen. And so we can seek to love our enemies because the cross proves God punishes wickedness. We can leave it in his hands. But there is one more thing to say, and that is this is chemotherapy, not aspirin. For some people, the very words of this psalm might be the right thing to pray. And one way to think about it is that this arm is a little bit like chemo rather than aspirin. Now, chemotherapy is a brutal treatment. If you've ever visited somebody in hospital having chemo, their hair falls out, they're vomiting all the time, the bag with the, the medication in has got all sorts of terrifying graphic warnings on it. It's nasty stuff. But if you've got cancer in you killing you, then taking an aspirin is not going to do. You need something as potent as chemotherapy. An aspirin just isn't enough. You wouldn't take it for a headache, but for cancer. Cancer, you need something serious. And for those amongst us who have suffered abuse, and some here have, uh, for those amongst us who've su- been subject to serious physical or sexual violence and not seen justice, as I know is the case for some, the wounds and the damage can be enormous. And the calls. To forgive and love your enemies can be an unbearable burden. And at this point, a psalm like Psalm 109 can be enormously helpful. Not as an alternative to forgiving, no, it's all right, you can just get on with cursing, but as part of the process. Because here is the assurance God will judge. Here, too, is the comfort of divinely sanctioned words that you can use to speak to God when you feel like you better not say anything because the inside of your heart is just seething with such ugly, angry, bitter, vengeful, bloodthirsty thoughts. Here are words to draw the poison out and give it to God. And so every time I've taught the course on Psalms, someone has come up to me afterwards and said about this, thank you. It is, Psalms like this are the thing that stops me going mad, to be honest, because I know when I'm feeling consumed with anger about my abuser, there are words even more brutal than anything I feel in the Bible that I can say to God and then leave it with Him. This helps me forgive. Thank God if you've never come close to wanting or needing to pray a psalm like this, thank God for his kindness. Thank God if you find yourself needing it that there are psalms like this. Thank God that one day the devil who is behind the evil described here will be destroyed forever. And thank God that the judgments that you and I deserve has been taken at the cross that our accuser, Satan, who stands calling for our condemnation in far more brutal language than Psalm 109, has been answered by Jesus, who has paid in his blood for our forgiveness.